Welcome to What Were You Thinking, where I speak to politicians, opinion formers and business leaders to find out about the experiences, people and places that have inspired them. In this episode, I speak to the one and only Jess Phillips about what influenced her views and priorities as a politician. It is clear that her time working at Women's Aid has had a profound impact on her politics, not least now that she's Shadow Minister for Domestic Violence and Safeguarding. We talk about gender equality, the idea of an exchange programme for MPs, and how entering Parliament changed some of her views whilst she has always stayed loyal to her core principles. We also talk about tribalism and her journey from growing up in a household where her father used to get into fights with Conservatives at election counts, all the way to receiving fan mail from Conservative voters. I have to say it was a real treat talking to Jess and I hope you enjoy the conversation. What Were You Thinking is in partnership with the Big Ten Ideas Festival, the nonpartisan festival of politics, culture, technology and fresh thinking. And this episode is supported by Finn Partners, one of the fastest growing independent public relations agencies, employing over 800 people in 19 offices over three continents. Jess, I'm genuinely really excited to have you on because I think you are a real model for, you know, many, many women in politics, but also outside of politics. You know, you've made such a big impact in quite a, you know, relatively short time since entering Westminster. What was it like getting into Parliament? What was your first impression? Gosh, it's hard to, it's hard to remember really, but my, um, I mean, it's very historic, isn't it? It's an incredibly historic place. And I had not been there very many times, maybe two, three times tops beforehand. I'd never worked in Parliament um, and I didn't go on trips to the building or anything. So I, you know, you walk in and it is, you're sort of crushed by the sense of history. And mm. everywhere you walk, there's been like a dead royal who was laying state there, um, which, you know, I'm not used to. I remember having this, uh, this sort of moment where I realised that one day on the way to work, I might have to walk past a member of the royal family lay with the public looking at them and I thought that that is a weird place to work isn't it a place where the royal family go and lie so the public can look at them I don't know what my expectations were people often ask me what were you expecting of it and I, I don't know the answer because I don't know that I had any expectation because I had no I had no um reference points I, I didn't like, you know, I wasn't like best mates with any MPs. I hadn't worked in Parliament. I didn't really know anybody who'd worked in Parliament. Um, so it was just, it was like being in the telly. It's <laughs> 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 the best way to describe it, maybe. But, yeah. uh, but you, uh, and also it's very different to anywhere else. The people are different to anywhere else I've ever worked. I was very, very aware very early on that, I remember noting the first woman I saw wearing a headscarf, a Muslim woman wearing a headscarf. And it was, I'd been there for like six weeks by that point. And I remember just thinking, gosh, this is nothing like where I live and where I've worked in the past. Uh, because lots of people are young men called Will, Tom or Ben. <laughs> it's very true. Very true. And um, I mean, you, I mean, the way it works is not obviously you've just done a, big slog campaign and then within sort of what is it 24 hours you find yourself in Westminster must be yeah I mean it's really weird as well because we didn't think we were going to be there because we expected in 2015 which seems ridiculous now uh there was expected to be a hung parliament all the polls were suggesting that there was going to be a hung parliament and so there would be argy-bargy about who was the the prime minister 
and that usually takes like a couple of like you know at least a couple of days weeks so we thought that we'd be you know if we were elected that we'd have a couple of days grace but in reality I was elected at 7am on Friday morning and um, I was expected in Westminster on Monday um, I had, you know, I, I don't live in London. I didn't have anywhere to stay or anywhere to go. Uh, I didn't, like, the, the travel office let you know that you can book a hotel room and stuff like that, but I wanted to take my kids with me. Mm. Um, and that seemed like I was asking to bring, bring a bomb. Um, so I just asked for a family room, and it was like, oh, gosh, I'm just not sure. It's just like, yeah. surely there are family rooms in hotels in London. Um, but there we go. Um, and so, yeah, it was really like, oh, my gosh, you're just thrown in. You walk in and you're sort of ushered into this room. You're given a pass. You're told, you don't have to do any security. I presume they've vetted you beforehand. But, like, you, you know, I suppose they can't turn you away, can they? What are they going to do yeah. if you're insecure? I'm not sure if they do. I'd love, yeah, I'm not sure if they do, actually. Because what, and I, I think it's really anything. nice you brought your kids. And it's funny that you got the reaction you did because it's going to be, you know, it's going to be such a large part of their life. Oh, yeah, tasty. totally. I mean, my children, I had to ask for them to be able to have time off school. They were at primary school at the time. My youngest was six uh, and my eldest was nine, I think, when I was elected um and um yeah so I, I wanted to take them with me because I wanted them to realize that what it was that I wasn't just disappearing for parts of the week that there was this place I was going and I wanted them to have an understanding of it um mm. so yeah they came down with me and we ended up sleeping on the floor of my mate's flat uh, in <laughs> Brixton um and yeah we were all in one bed me and my husband and my two children uh, in this room and uh, then I had to go and sort of start the rest of my life having had about three hours sleep and being kicked in the face by a six-year-old all night. <laughs> One of the things you just touched upon is that you, when you came into Parliament, you didn't actually know that many people in Westminster, whereas, you know, um, probably quite a few of your colleagues might have worked in Westminster previously or might have been special advisors and things like that. You, you're a very strong you have very strong individuality. Do you think it, it this helped you find your own feet and stick to your own guns coming yeah. in well, without I, those? I, I think so, yeah, because I think that I had no expectation. So you can do whatever you want, can't you? You can make it what you want. The only expectation I entered Parliament with was the expectation of my constituents. And they're quite a lot like me. You know, they didn't, you know, they don't want me to say only certain things or speak with one voice the same as everybody else. They're, they're not that, they're not bothered if, they're, if we're honest. Um, mm. But so, yeah, I do think it, it helped me not having been part of the, the sort of political movement that I was part of, um, that I grew up in. Um, you know, I hadn't been part of that since sort of you know 1997 really when the Labour Party won we sort of the stridentness of growing up under Thatcher uh, and all the political activism that we did sort of had died away so I wasn't one of those people who went to like you know university Labour club I went and got drunk and danced um, and so yeah I think that I think it de definitely helped me be an individual and that's not to say that others aren't individual who who have a different route but I could just be exactly who I was um, without anyone's expectation. I often didn't understand what people were talking about. People would use language, even about the Labour Party, 
like the word GC that people kept saying to me oh you know you're going to take this back to your GC and I thought I don't know what a GC is but that's like it's like a sort of meeting that they have in the labor park but we don't have them in Birmingham and so I you know what does the, it stand for I think general I don't even know isn't that terrible general, general committee council. or council yeah general committee. um and we yeah we just don't have any of that so yeah all this terminology that people were talking about I didn't know what the word spad meant when I entered into Parliament, I'd never heard that word before. Ignorance is bliss. Yeah, yeah. well, totally. And it didn't harm <laughs> me in any way. It just meant that, you know, I just got to ask the questions and speak my with my own voice. No, that's really interesting. So you have spoken of a past um, about sort of your, your parents and in particular your father having, you know, quite a quite a strong view on on politics or, yes, you know indeed. very very strong views on politics and in partic- in particular one of the, things, the anecdotes that I really enjoyed was um hearing about was that he had the tendency of getting into fights at election counts yep that's correct um, <laughs> largely because of his dislike of Tories right yes yeah oh yeah, yeah. I mean in, in no small part in because of his dislike of Tories and and also <laughs> like you know anybody you know can spot the person that they can wind up and my dad and my grandfather were definitely those two people and so yeah I mean he's been escorted out of election counts for having rows and you know there being rooks at election counts because uh, there's always police officers at election counts mm-hmm. uh, so yeah he's been he's been escorted out I remember in the 19 I was thinking about it the other day because uh, my uncle Chris came round, not my real uncle, you understand, just a man who lives over the road from my parents. Um, and he had come round to drop off a uh, fishing rod for my son. Uh, and um, he, uh, my son was asking me, well, when did you really get to know Uncle Chris? And I said, oh, well, he moved to our street just before the 1997 general election. And um, I, my main memory of him was that he came to watch the election count uh, in 1997 at our house. It was him, this Liverpudlian fella called Kevin, my dad, my granddad and I watched it all together. And my son said, well, where was your, where was your mum? And I said, oh, she was at the count. And he was like, why didn't granddad go? I was like, granddad's not allowed to go to the counts anymore. <laughs> uh, but he's been to mine. He's been to some of mine since. And he's, he's, he's mellowed in his, his, uh, his older years. <laughs> he doesn't start fights now, but I do but sometimes. It, <laughs> it's really interesting because you know that is good. That that is a height of tribalism, um, which obviously is is a common theme in British politics. Um, and yet, you came into Parliament, and your popularity cuts across different political parties. Um, how do you think that evolved, considering your your parents and your upbringing? Yeah, um, and weird. and what. Are you were you taken by surprise yourself? Yeah. I, I was really taken by surprise, and still every single day, pretty much, I will get emails from around the country, um, and 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 the most common sentence that is in those emails says, "Uh, you you couldn't be further away from my politics, but I like what you stand for, and mm. or I like that you say what you think, and I believe that you are honest." Um, and so I get a huge amount of that and I found very early on I suppose because we had small majorities uh, at the time then into hung parliament territory there is a real need if you want want to achieve things in there to be finding people across the the aisles to work with Mm -hmm. Um, it's much less it's much (laughs) 
it's much less fruitful at the moment when they've got the Tories have got an 80 majority. But there was a time yeah. when your vote was so important that if you allied with somebody from the opposite side to, to do something you really believed in, it was really, really powerful. And, and that was the environment that I was elected into from the get go, even mm. though Cameron had a majority, had a majority of 12 or something, didn't he, in early doors. So mm. um, it wasn't like, you know, it was nothing to write home about. Um so I, I think I think that to be perfectly honest though, it is just because I don't have any side on me and there is an element of um that people like that that you, you say what you think, you 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 mean what you say and people know where they stand with you, even if they don't agree with you. And most people don't expect to agree with people. Most ordinary people don't expect to agree with people all the time. It's one of mm-hmm. the things that I have a real bugbear in uh in in all political movements the idea that you can't you can't challenge people's views with without being rude so some of my constituents think absolutely crackers things for example some of them think that the coronavirus was caused by 5g networks now it the idea that i should just agree with my constituents lock stock and barrel without challenging some of their views um, but but you can do that with a per- in a perfectly reasonable manner, and you can do that while still making them feel like you're listening to them. One thing I really hate is the idea that we can't speak up against the idea of some of what the working class is. I'm doing inverted commas if you had me on video. Um, <laughs> that the idea that you've got to sort of like. The, the idea that working class people can't take challenge and aren't all having Barneys around the dinner table every night is just, and it's not a world I come from. I come from a world where everything gets debated and everything, you know, there's always somebody playing a devil's advocate. Um, and so I, I just think that that's the reason that people liked it. There are some, there were definitely some really, really posh Tories um, who I think just have maybe never met a person like me. And, and the feeling was mutual. I had never met a person like them either. Um, and that it's interesting, isn't it, to meet people that you've not met before, sort of slightly mm. bawdy, willing to say what they like, fag smoking woman from the Midlands who you can get on with perfectly well. Yeah, totally. Um, I think that's 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 really striking because um, I think you know what you say. Like there are certain types of of conservatives. I mean, that's, as you say, that's really posh ones that um, you, you know you've not come across, and they've probably not come across people like yourself or people from where you come from. And um, that's not at all surprising. Although I do find it a great shame about British politics, but. I do find it odd that even though we've had this parliamentary system for a long time where on the whole, you know, constituencies constituencies return MPs from their local area, um, that they haven't had these encounters much or interactions much before. Is that, do you think, because they just don't interact much within parliament or is it that outside of parliament they just don't travel enough? I mean, what how can we how can we change this yeah i mean there's all how the about ideas um, about having like swaps swapsies yeah what do i know about an exchange what, program yeah what do i know about rural affairs absolutely nothing uh there is sheldon country park in my constituency he's got like a horse uh and that's about it um and so what do i know about fisheries i come from birmingham the farthest away from the sea um and, and what does what does somebody who represents um, you know, parts of Surrey know about what it is like to live on 
uh, a council estate or to represent huge, big, sprawling council estates or what it's like to represent people with different ethnicities um, and what, you know, what will work. It's a real shame. The brilliant thing about our parliamentary democracy is that it sends people from of all types and it sends people who represent all different types of people. Um, and you see it, you see that, you know, Labour MPs in cities are much more likely to be talking about the the the, the hostile environment of the Home Office because I deal with it every single day. Um, and, you know, people in rural communities are much more likely to be talking about either rural poverty or lack of connectivity. There's a huge amount of talk about A-roads that goes on in Parliament. I have never mentioned an A-road because... Uh, I have M roads where I live. <laughs> um, I, I have, I, you know, Spaghetti Junction is just outside my constituency. A roads are not my concern. Um, but the, um, you know, there's a, the, the, that is brilliant about that. But there is very, very little done in Parliament to make sure that all of those voices are represented when big sweeping changes are made. And that means people get missed. So, you know, for example, the the bedroom tax or the spare room subsidy, when that was brought in, it felt like the people bringing it in had never met a person because they had, you know, if they'd just spoken to somebody who represents a seat like, a seat like mine that has a high rates of social housing, they would have known, for example, that, you know, soldiers leave their rooms spare and come back to them. Uh, mm. people get divorced <laughs> and mm. live separately from their children and need spare rooms for that that carers sometimes need to stay over and it just felt a little bit like gosh you didn't really speak to all the people you could have spoken to to make this policy fit and be better and it's not about just saying well we shouldn't have that policy it is about putting in the exemptions and the the necessary things to make it work and I mean I don't actually agree that that policy could ever work but that is just a good example of of what you know if we were to work together much more and take account of each other's areas much more because all those people voted i won an election just exactly like boris johnson won an election those people voted for me to represent them and yeah. the the reality is is that they their votes matter as well and th- their experience matters and there's got to be a better way of um of of doing that now maybe the new red wall seat tories um you know maybe they'll get a, a taste of it because they'll have lots of uh council estates they'll have lots of um areas of uh deprivation in their constituencies so let's see if they think that you know damning welfare dependent people is a cracking idea yeah that will be an interesting development but yeah i do i do think there's a lot to say about an exchange program i think i think um Think we should yeah i think we should make that happen really and so how does your dad feel about your popularity amongst conservatives then i think he finds it quite charming really um i think um yeah i think he 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 he, 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 he had a sort of letter writing thing with some of them my dad is uh loves to write letters he uh, i mean he sends them via email now he's not that old-fashioned but um Often MPs will get in touch with me and say, "Oh, your dad wrote me a lovely letter." So he's written to... <laughs> He's very good That's at really letter nice. writing. He's very good. He's uh, he, he writes lovely letters. Um, but um, yeah, he I think he so he writes to some of them sometimes. He doesn't. He would never act like he hated somebody on a personal level anymore. 
maybe just age. Except but, punching them. Okay. Yeah, no, he wouldn't punch anybody. I mean, to be fair, he wouldn't, punch, he wouldn't punch anybody unless... Frankly, they had, in, you know, there's, there's, there's a puncher, a punchy, everybody, it's all going round. But um, no, he, w- he certainly wouldn't. He certainly wouldn't do that. I mean, the man's nearly 80 for a start off. Um, but um, but no, I think he thinks it's it's interesting. And I think that um, it me being a member of parliament undoubtedly has humanised members of parliament for him. I think it signals progress. I'd like to, I mean, the yeah, optimist yeah, yeah. in me likes to think it signals progress. Yeah, and the Tories you're allowed to like. You were always allowed to like Ken Clark. My, my dad always described him <laughs> as the Tory you were allowed to like. And and now my dad will say things like, I mean, he is an avid watcher of Question Time and I don't actually watch it very often. Um, and so he'll ring me and say, oh, you know, that fella on Question Time, Tom Tugendhat that was that time, that fella, I quite like him. He, he's got me. Or he'll say, you want to watch that one? He's clever. He's wrong, but yeah. he's clever. He'll <laughs> ring me and give me an assessment of the Tories. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. On question Very time, young. but yeah, no, I think that I think that he he definitely thinks that some of them, especially over the Brexit stuff, I think he thought some of them were really, really brave and deserved credit, regardless of their tribe. So, what do you think politics can do to earn a better reputation? Oh God, start or again. Turn the internet off. Uh, <laughs> um, Look, I think that politicians, uh, it's 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 not just on politicians, really. It's on political activism as a whole. I think it's got to be much, much better at listening and be much, much less certain about it being right because it just feels to the public like if you're so certain, you can't listen and you don't care what they think. And so I think it is really, really important even when you're very, very strident about a thing, to enter into reasonable debate about it. That is, I mean, that's the triumph of bloody hope over experience, isn't it? Like like, like we can have reasonable debate about anything at the moment. It just seems unlikely, um, but we, we must try. But also, I think that we have to include many more people. We have to make people realise that politics is for them and that they are actually in charge and that they can change it. Um, and I think for too long, um, it has felt to people like it was something that happened somewhere else and not something that happened where they live. And so, you know, I mean, I wrote a book about trying to encourage people to change things where they are and in their lives by speaking up, because I really think that that makes people believe in politics more. And, I, you know, I'm so proud of our democracy. I think that it's you know, there's some gold class things about it that don't exist in other countries. Like, you know, the idea that you can, that your member of parliament might knock on your door in another country is just, it's really, really, really uncommon. Whereas I go outdoor, I mean, not at the moment because I'm, you know, don't want to be a super spreader. Uh, But um, I go out and knock on people's doors every single week. Every yeah. single Saturday or Friday evening, I go out and I knock on people's doors in my constituency. And and they're like, oh, Alan, Jessie's at the door. And, you know, that that is, there's something brilliant about that. Anyone can come and see me at any time. And yeah. it reminds me of an anecdote that William Hague once shared from his days as foreign sec, that he'd, when we were making, uh, making small talk ahead of a meeting, um, Hillary Clinton would be like, Oh, William, tell us tell us about your surgeries again. <laughs> tell us about your surgeries. What happened at your last surgery? 
Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That is... And Putin was just like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Imagine, imagine Putin sitting down and being like, you know, somebody's got an overgrown shed and their neighbour's not cutting it back. Um, I, 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 it grounds <laughs> exactly. us all. Um, yeah. And I think it's, I just, yeah, I do, I do just think it's one of the best things about our democracy. Um, mm. And... You know, I, I, there's obviously I, I represent a very diverse area, and I remember a bloke who had come here from Ghana coming out to uh, sit to door knock with us, um, and he just couldn't believe that I was knocking on people's doors. He was like, you know, politicians like you where I live just drive past in blacked out SUVs, yeah, and he's just like, it's amazing that you're doing this. And but the reality is, is that's my favourite part of my job. The Westminster part of it is rubbish by comparison. Um, mm. The stuff in your constituency, and I really miss it at the moment. It's horrific actually, because you start to believe that the online world at the moment is the real world. Mm. Um, and normally you can get a load of vitriol on Twitter or a load of people shouting at you and waving placards at you outside Westminster. And you get back and, you know, Bernie has come round to say that they did finally collect a recycling. I find that that actually grounds me and makes me feel like plugged into reality. Um, and so it's definitely worth protecting. And I think all members, that you know, there are some that are more idle than others, no two ways about that. But I think pretty much all members of parliament have a more direct relationship with their constituents in our country than in any country in the world. So knowing knowing what you did before entering Parliament, it's quite apparent that that period has had a big influence on your time and also priorities as a politician. Is there an individual who's impacted your politics or thinking? Um, yeah, so um, on the day that I was interviewed for my job um, at Women's Aid in the Black Country, um, I... There was a young woman in the waiting room. Um, she must have been about then, about 16, 17. Um, and she was waiting. And, you know, you, you sort of assume that people in the waiting room when you're waiting to be interviewed might be <laughs> being interviewed as well. But you could never have mistaken this young woman for uh, being... She looked much younger than 17. She looked about 11, 12. Um, and she was... Uh, she was a client um, of the sexual violence service. She was a young woman who had been abused by her family as a child, um, had had a house set on fire with her in it, had had to go into care, Gosh. in and out of care. She had mm. then been raped in her later teenage years. And I worked with this woman and got to know her and she was there. She was a permanent feature throughout my time working there. And she ended up, you know, sort of, drug uh, dependent and um, sexually exploited being sold uh, for sex and she was both um, a difficult and brilliant character and I think that lots of people who think about working with vulnerable people or working somewhere like women's aid that you know the idea of a survivor in their heads is often like the sort of thing you might read in Take About magazine about woman escapes domestic abuse and sets up business and lives a prosperous life and that's mm. we've, we've got this idea of survivors in our heads but this young woman 
she got up out of bed every day regardless of the fact that literally at every turn in her life she had been exploited and abused and she still got up every day and just carried on living and carried on trying and seeking support and I just always thought I'm never ever going to turn I'm never going to ever assume that there is the idea of the perfect victim the perfect person to help or that things aren't difficult because she was you know she was a difficult character when you get a lot of people who go like oh it's such meaningful work you know the sort of work working with uh, victims of domestic and sexual violence and 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 the idea that you know all of these people are just sort of poor sorry victims well this young woman she was often really really difficult <laughs> she was often really really difficult to handle and on one occasion I remember going in and she'd asked to use the phone saying that she had to like ring the DSS or ring somebody in a hospital or something and we we're like yeah sure use the phone in the main reception and I walked into the main reception and she was doing a very obvious drug deal from the main reception um, and so you know it, it, the idea that there is perfect situations and perfect policy that doesn't leave people out or allow people to fall through the gaps is is for the birds but I you know I always think how would this have help her whenever I'm Mm. thinking about any policy or anything that I'm doing around domestic violence I think well you know how 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 is this going to help her how would this have changed her life and I spent years working alongside her and her support workers and we had to have children removed from her and you know, it's not an easy life, but she still, to me, is a real inspiration in that somebody who just bothers to wake up every morning. And I just don't think I would have been able to do that if I was in her situation. Coming into Parliament, you've made great use of your experiences, such as the ones you just described, um, from your time at Women's Aid. And you, you know, you are you are a true champion um, campaigning against domestic violence. So you've had to wait quite a while for this bill. Yeah. Um, what what are your thoughts on the progress that we are edging towards? Um, um, you know, what well, else is needed? And- uh, I'm really, really pleased uh, that we're edging towards progress. And every, you know, it's a real this actually. What I was saying about how we don't do enough to make sure that. Uh, legislation takes account of everybody's views I actually think that the domestic abuse bill largely because it got put off so many times because of uh, and it's taken so long it has throughout its progress had so much scrutiny and the bill as it started three years ago is unrecognisable from the bill we have today because the government did definitely seek to try and make it a sort of cross-party piece of legislation as as did all the parties seek to make it a cross-party piece of legislation that that had people everybody's voices in it and so you know the amount of stuff that I have thought to be in the bill that is now in it um that wasn't in the beginning you know it may that that's how legislation should be built although we should try and do it slightly more quickly in future um <laughs> but there we go time in this instance was uh, a great help um, but there is there is still areas where the bill will not support uh, people who I come across still every single day as a constituency MP. So there is a big gap with regard to migrant um, victims of domestic abuse where they're not really supported by the bill and they wouldn't be able to access the refuge accommodation that the bill makes a legal requirement. Uh, quite rightly, that's something that I fought for. 
Um, and also, I think that the protection of community-based services, 70% of domestic violence victims access uh, support in the community, not in refuge. And so the protections that they've put in place for refuge, in my opinion, should be spread across all community-based services. For example, children's services, children who've been victims of domestic abuse don't actually, uh, you, you know, very rarely are they seeking support in refuges, obviously. Um, but there is very little funding actually to support children who are living in a domestic abuse situation. And we're talking about, you know, around a million children every year. Yeah. So I want to see that in it and I will keep on mm. fighting. It's got to go to the Lords though. So maybe they'll, they'll dress it up a bit more and make it a little bit better. It's been changed at every single stage of the game. So there's no reason to think it won't be changed again in the Lords. I mean, the Lords, that's a, very even posher than in the Commons. How are you dealing <laughs> Although, with the Conservatives there? Are you, I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously the, the hereditary ones are quite posh. Although quite a lot of sort of hereditary types are in the Commons as well. Um, mm. But um, yeah, the, the 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 Lords, yeah, I think it's fair to say that they are posher. I also think that they're in lots of cases uh, much, much, much more. Uh, learned in both the parliamentary sense of the word in that they understand the law because most of them are lawyers there's no shortage of lawyers in the lords um and also but they're all lots of people from industry aren't they they're not they're lots of people from charities and industries who really yeah. know what they're talking about so like you know john bird who set up the big issue and mm. and you've got doctors in there who would have been dealing with you know the very famous gynecological doctors who definitely would have been dealing with for example incidences of violence sexual violence and the effects that it has there's all that sort of thing that i think will go um that whilst they are you know posh and frankly unelected uh, is what i'm more worried about than posh uh, there is definitely a wealth of knowledge and experience that I think can really add to things in there. Yeah. And there's been quite a lot of reports that women have been disproportionately affected by COVID-19 and and the crisis that, that followed and we're still in. Do you think this government is paying enough attention to this and or uh, I'm guessing the answer's going to be no. The answer is absolutely. <laughs> I don't think they're paying any attention to it at all. Uh, like not one bit of attention is being paid to it. Um, you know, I, I I don't disagree as somebody who's recently lost a stone and a half after COVID binging that, um, that you know, Boris Johnson has gone out on the television to talk about um, obesity and the effects of that on, on corona, you know, corona on obesity and how it's more dangerous. You know, the, the disproportionate number of, black and ethnic minority people who have died um, during the COVID-19 crisis and the vast majority of the economic um, and social impacts being on women. And the thing that he went for was the thing that he is, and that was obesity. And it's just like, you know, if, if you're going to make COVID make you wake up about something, it, you know, it's, it's just not a surprise that it's the thing that he has experienced that is the thing that we're now all talking about getting losing a few pounds so we're not victims of covid nothing has been done to look at public health interventions of black and minority ethnic staff and people you know that my constituency has the second highest death rate in the country of covid19 really? you know it's it's not because they're not all on their bloody bike and the it's just you know that 
is is maddening. So yeah, that I, I mean the beards versus having your eyebrows done, wasn't it? Like that was that just absolutely spelled it out that you could go and have your beard trimmed, but women couldn't have their eyebrows done. That 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 I have been dealing with from the beginning, as if there was no woman in the room saying there's been nothing about childcare. I literally, whilst they are being incredibly quiet now. I've got like half the bloody neighbourhood's kids in my garden because their mums and dads have got to go to work and there's nothing in place. There's been nothing about childcare and childcare providers are on their knees. The fact that care homes are largely staffed by women, um, it, it's no surprise that they were also completely and utterly forgotten in the uh, in 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 the planning. Let alone the slow reaction to the obvious risk of people victims of domestic violence. Just madness. Yeah, it's been really, 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 really bad and they don't care and it won't necessarily hurt them. They think it's identity politics, whereas for some of us, it's our lives. So how do you think the, um, the how do we move a needle on women's issues? You know, what needs to happen? You, you kind of alluded also, it, it's like there aren't any women in the room. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I think that probably largely is the it does seem to be the case um although obviously there are some but um what do you think needs yeah yeah well there, there, well, there are that? some women in the room the the people with power in this country at the moment are dominic cummings michael gove boris johnson and rishi sunak now the best i know none of them are women um but so i think that that is where there is a problem so it doesn't matter you can put put women in the room i, I went on a trip to china um, with the all-party parliamentary group on China, uh, which was very eye-opening. And in the first two meetings I had with various different uh, government organisations in China, I pointed out that there were no women in the room. Um, and then, um, in in their in their polite and face-saving wisdom, the the Communist Party then at every meeting I was in, there were three women in the room, um, <laughs> who largely sat on their phones uh, because, frankly. They've just been sent to be in the room. So I, I'm not asking for tokenism. I'm asking for power. We need women at the top of power structures, making decisions um, and and speaking up. I mean, the, the, the reality is, is that it's understandable that Boris Johnson understands what obesity and corona has because he's experienced it. You know, he's he's never suffered period poverty. He's... He's never had to arrange childcare because he had to go to work. And so we we need people with power to make to be in those rooms where those decisions get made. Or at least if they don't want them in those rooms, hive off a bit of the power and make sure that, you know, it was three weeks before the government announced anything about domestic abuse um, it, during the coronavirus crisis whereas people like me were screaming up for it from mm. before we went into lockdown we were talking about what was happening yeah. in china well that would but before we'd even had a case of coronavirus in this country now lives could have been saved so yeah we need more women in the room and we need to stop it being considered like domestic violence for example being considered to be a women's issue if you you know if you work with people you're working with victims of domestic violence if you any government department it should be core priority in in everything that happens not just sort of like you know the bit of the home office that has six civil servants associated with it it damns education, it damns health services, it damns, you know, it's, mm. you've got to make these things more core, 
they are as caught you know like diabetes in the health service you would never commission a diabetes service imagine the nhs you know simon stevens came out and said we're going to commission services in the health service that only help every fifth person we've decided only every fifth person with diabetes is going to get the insulin now and that's what we do in loads of services that are about women loads and loads so you talk about you know having women in the women in the room and the need for more women in the room um and you've also been pretty outspoken on your desire to see a female leader for labor now you put your money where your mouth is because you know you obviously put yourself forward in the leadership race are you disappointed that labor's new leader is another white middle class relatively privileged man or have you made peace with it i mean i think his relative privilege was it has been earned which i think is slightly better than a a relative privilege that is given um but uh yeah look I, I, of course, I'm disappointed. There's no, you know, no bones about the fact that I uh, want a, a woman to be the leader because I genuinely think it would be transformative for the country for that reason, not for, you know, Politburo having a woman on the phone uh, in the meeting reasons. Um, I think I think it would change. And if we look at countries, if you look at like New Zealand and Germany, and I do think that there is a different way of governance that has been brought about by female heads of state. Um, So I think that for that reason, I'm disappointed. Um, But I will I will measure my disappointment in the fact that Keir Starmer is a man in how he treats women in the country and how their lives advance. And well, certainly the women in the party, how their uh, experiences advance under his leadership. And should he become the prime minister? which I very much hope he sh- he should, regardless of his chromosomes, um, that, um, that ha- how well women in the country fare and how much power he gives away to women in the party to make sure that's the case. Because Tony Blair, um, when he was the prime minister, you know, he, he gave away power to women in his party to help women in the country. And when I think of like Tessa Jowell and the, the Sure Start movement and... Um, and the change in childcare that was done, the, the the amount of money that was put into the pockets of the women in the house. Um, and I felt it myself. I lived it myself. I had both my children under the last Labour government and I felt like women were progressing. And so that is what I will test Keir Starmer on. It is what I would test Boris Johnson on. It is what I tested Theresa May on. Um, your core beliefs seem to be largely unchanged in the sense that you you know you're obviously very principled and hearing you talk about your principles in quite a young age they seem to be uh, largely unchanged however would you say your experiences in parliament have changed any views or added on any oh yeah I mean lots um yeah I I think that if you're not willing to change your I mean I've got core principles about equality that will are unchangeable they are because I mean, I'm never going to think, you know, some people deserve more. <laughs> I'm never going to think that um, that the idea that everybody had the same opportunity. So, as a core and guiding principle, that has never, that hasn't, that will never change. And I can't imagine an argument that would ever change it. However, how you do things, how you skin that particular cat. Um, I have definitely changed um, with the environment, but whether, you know, I, I still think I've still very much believed that the state 
should be the person that should be the the provider of services for people so whether it's your healthcare your education uh support services for uh vulnerabilities um and 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 housing and and, and all of those sorts of basic needs i do think that the state is the, is is you know has the, should have the greatest role in provision um and that comes from being raised a socialist but also i just i i can't i can't square a circle that means that somebody makes a profit from me getting cancer for example i just can't square that circle particularly easily um i certainly can't square it when you're talking about people who've been raped and like rape crisis centers being profit making or you know that just doesn't seem right to me however you know i learned i learned it before i got to parliament when we had a conservative government uh, and we started to see the well actually it was a coalition government to be fair um we started to see what state funding we'd had for example for rape crisis services for children to be paired back they were they were going and i for example i, I got a funding pot from the big lottery company now i was raised by very very left-wing people who believe that the lottery is a poor man's tax uh, and there's an element of truth in that um but i could and i believe that the state should have funded it but i was faced with a situation where they weren't going to and so i could either rest on my laurels and sleep soundly in my principled bed or i could make sure that children in the midlands were sleeping soundly in their beds and i chose mm. the latter mm. and i think that since being in parliament i have learnt that whilst you know you go in for the absolute gold class what you want at the beginning but you have to learn to compromise along the way to achieve the best outcome for the greatest number of people and sometimes that means putting my principles into a little box and mm. hoping that I can reinvent them when I have reignite them when I have more power but I have to fight the war I have not the war I want um, because the outcome is all that matters. The outcome is the thing I focus on. And that's maybe sounds very Machiavellian that the ends justify the means, but I, I, I will do anything and I will, I will dance with the devil to make women and children safer. Um, and that's because it's not about me. It's about them. Mm. And that that is uh, whenever I talk to people about trying to decide what is your motivating factor, if your motivation is spite or self-belief, then potentially you're going to just end up sad with any campaign that you run um, and it will yeah. harm you. But if your motivation is genuine, a genuine outcome for others, you can't go much. You can't go wrong with that, in my opinion. And I learned that I learned that that meant changing some of the things that I I thought were the right thing and yeah there's, there's, all, there's all sorts of you know I, I thought that Tories were all completely evil and I, I think that they just they often want the same things that I want they just have a different means of getting going about it um, and I mean not all of them some of them are absolute arseholes but uh, <laughs> but by and large um I think that everybody pretty much there's about 10% of people who didn't go to parliament to make the world a better place. Yeah. I mean on on that note, who is your favorite non-labor politician? Oh gosh. Um there's quite a few uh, that I mean Laura Farris is my new favorite. So NBF new best friend is uh, <laughs> she's she's the new MP for Newbury. 
Mm. And she, um, her and I co-chair the Women in Work All-Party Parliamentary Group, and she's really big on the fact that women are going to be harmed by the coronavirus crisis. She was also one of the MPs that we worked with to get the rough sex defence um, law changed in the domestic abuse bill. Um, she and and she 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 voted against. It wasn't a whip because you're not allowed to whip on house business, but she they were strongly recommended to vote a certain way on mm. some of the sexual harassment in Westminster uh, yeah. votes. And Laura and Laura Farris did not. And for a new MP not to do that, that is that yeah. takes some guts, man. So Cahoes, I think yeah. I think that, she, you know, she and I are going to do some world changing together over the, the period uh, that we're both in Parliament together. And I think she's a good egg. Um, I think Alex Chalk, the MP for Cheltenham, he's like my opposite number. So I sort of shadow him on the domestic abuse bill. And so he has to constantly say no to me. But he definitely says yes. Also takes cojones. <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But to be fair, whenever he can find a way to say yes, he has. And that has come from genuine dialogue and sitting down and talking to me. You know, he, he wouldn't he wouldn't be agreeing to something in his department that was about domestic abuse or safeguarding without having a conversation with me first. And mm. that is that's that's something to be really, really, really praised because it means we get better laws and we get things through quicker. Um, so uh, I you think know. Um, I think we also share another another favorite which is nicholas soames i know but he's not there anymore i know i think he still counts he still counts he is my he deserves airtime he does he deserves all the airtime in the world and it's funny before i um was elected to parliament i had heard all sorts of horror stories about nicholas soames about his sort of sexism and his uh you know sort of like his manner and i just found him to be one of the kindest most supportive bravest most outspoken people and and just like the idea that he and i i remember him he lost loads of weight didn't he and i'm mm. uh, an obsessive dieter i'm constantly on some ridiculous diet or not and i just remember being in the lobby with like the statue of margaret thatcher looming over and pointing at us in the members lobby and him giving me diet advice <laughs> <laughs> he says he says Muller yogurt wrong. He was telling me that he 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 lost loads of weight by eating loads of Muller yogurt, but he says it moolah, <laughs> <laughs> moolah yogurt. I was like that. You mean Muller Muller yogurt? That's um, yeah. But he is just you know he. He, he supports on principle and if he believed yeah. that you were honest and you, you were right about something and, and he, you knew more about it than he did, he would back you up with his people yeah. and he would speak honestly with you about things that were right and wrong. And I just, yeah, I miss him. Uh, I miss him. Also, he just, he's, he's totally uh, hilarious. <laughs> it's just, yeah. he would say things to me like, you know, that, I've just never met people who talk like that. And so um, he was constantly asking me to go in and do talks at Eton. Where his, I think some of his children went to Eton. Have you done that? No, you... well, maybe I will you one should. day. You should. You totally should. He was like, I mean, you, should, sh- you should go to Eton. You, you'd, you'd put a cracker up their bums of some of those lads. <laughs> like... Oh, my God. Yeah, I'd love to be a fly on the wall for that. that you, you should totally do that. Totally do that. And so what would you say your most crazy experience has been in Parliament? Oh gosh, there are. It, it the whole thing is is um, slightly manic and weird. Um, so it's it's hard to sort of pick 
the the sort of craziest moments you have you have moments all the time where you sort of sit back when you're voting on things like war and bombing and terrorism you you get the real sense that the weight of the world is on your shoulders that that it's easy to sit and be an armchair sort of like you know to commentator but when you actually have to make decisions that feels crazy that somebody like me gets to make those decisions every single time I'm like oh gosh this is this is absolute madness but you have I mean parliament is full normally it's really 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 rubbish at the moment because <laughs> of the coronavirus crisis on mm. any corridor in Parliament at any one time, there is a million different events going on about literally all of life. And, you know, from saving the rainforest to, you know, the tread on tyres, the places are fascinating. It's like an encyclopedia and you can learn as much as you like about anything you want and that is it just so you know you go from a day where you'll be dealing with somebody's drop curb to you know writing legislation that will change the lives of every child in the country for forever and you just think gosh this is a crazy job i like mm. it though it's good um um what's um what's the best advice you've ever been given um the uh, there's a good piece of advice that I was given and never followed uh, by somebody on my very first day in Parliament. Um, I think it was Johnny Reynolds, uh, the M MP up in Greater Manchester. He said, anybody who asks you to do anything, like an event, imagine that it's tonight and do you want to go? Uh, because the answer is always <laughs> no, you don't want to go tonight. But when somebody asks you months in advance, you always go, yeah, go on, then I'll do it. I'll do it. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't follow that advice. I say yes to everything. And now I give the advice to people to say yes to everything because I feel it expands your horizons. But Johnny Reynolds was definitely right. I spent my entire life thinking, God, I just want to go home. Um, <laughs> but um, but also, I think um, Harriet Harman, when we were first elected, she sat in front of us, new MPs in 2015, and she said, you're not rookie MPs. You're the Member of Parliament for your seat. And... Don't try and mimic anybody else. Don't don't think that you have to earn your stripes in this building before you can speak up about things. You you are you, you have a mandate from your people. Use it. Don't act mm. anxious about it. And that was pretty good advice. That was pretty good advice. Yeah. Always yeah. wear red lipstick on the uh, on the television was a piece of advice given to me by the the no longer the MP for Stoke on Trent's mom, so Ruth Smith's mom, who is a brilliant and uh, you know absolutely atypical Jewish mother. She she said to me, always put lipstick on on the television. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, thank you so much, Jess. That was really interesting no and worries. fun. No worries. My pleasure. I think it is fair to say that Jess is a role model for many women, especially in and around politics, no matter what your personal politics is. Now, if you enjoyed this episode and are looking for more content, make sure to become a friend of The Big Tent and also please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast, which will really help. 
And as it is a brand new podcast, I would be very grateful if you could spread the word as well. And if you have any questions you would like me to put to future guests or any requests for guests, please let me know via Twitter. I'm at Laura Round. Thank you. And till the next time. 